welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hello, everybody. My name is Duncan, and I'm uh, here today to present a sermon that is part of your series on how to understand the Bible and what on earth is it that we're reading. And my particular task is to talk about the issue of genre and how the Bible is literature. And the best way I can think of to try and understand that is just to give a little bit of my own story. And so well over 30 years ago when I was back in the UK, I had an experience of a conversion from being an atheist where God suddenly just appeared to me and the reality of God became a reality in my life. And one of the things that happened very soon after that was I just had this hunger and this thirst to read the Bible. Shortly after that, I moved here to Canada. I started attending a, a church. It was a very Protestant and evangelical church. And so it was natural that the Bible was held in very high regard. And so as part of it, obviously just following on from that, it was natural for me to want to study the Bible. And so I spent the next couple of decades immersed in the study of the Bible. That resulted in me going to seminary and eventually completing a Master of Divinity in biblical studies, and then going on from there to do a PhD in New Testament. And to this day, I teach in Tyndale Seminary and I teach New Testament on a full-time basis. But part of the experience of going through that academic journey was a lot of confusion because I encountered all sorts of different ways of reading the Bible and all sorts of challenges to how I actually thought about the Bible so that the way I think about the Bible today is really quite different from how I thought about the Bible 30 years ago. Now, I say that in a sense to give a little bit of a warning to what I'm going to say today. It's almost like I feel like some of what I'm going to say should come with a warning to it, uh, sort of like warning on the end of cigarette packets. I don't think that this will kill you, but it might disturb you. Some of the things I might say will possibly disturb you. At least I know that can be the case sometimes for some of my students. If that's the case, my advice to you is simply that let that be something that you go away and you reflect on because sometimes the things that disturb us are the very things that we're going to uh, get the most amount of growth out of as we go away and we reflect on those. If there's other things that I say that are very helpful for you, then I'll just be very thankful for that. Uh, I do want to say right up front that I'm not claiming in any way to speak for God. I'm simply going to share some of my own journey as I have wrestled with having to think about the Bible. I want to talk about some of the ways that I've been helped, and especially in this area of trying to think about the Bible as literature and genre. So with that sort of backdrop, the very first thing I want to point out about the Bible is that the Bible is not just a single, solitary, big book, like this big book over here. We have these Bibles that we sometimes stick on our lecterns in churches, but that's really gives a, a, a wrong kind of impression about what the Bible is, because actually the Bible is much more like this as a library of books. It's a collection of books. It's different authors from different times and places, using different languages, different cultures, different periods of history, and different contexts. Not only is it a collection of books, the Bible is also a very human book, and I know you've heard a little bit about this in one of your recent sermons, but what I want to highlight today is not just the human language of the book, but the human conventions by which the Bible is written. 
each one of these books that I selected to bring along is slightly different from the other one. There's some that are philosophical books, some are like instruction books that we would read, like there's a, a DIY manual that we might read because we want to try and fix something in our house. Uh, there's another book that's poems and short stories actually written in German. And there's other books we could have letters. Uh, there's all sorts of different books and we know when we go to read a particular book, we always have, we recognize that there are different rules for reading. So we don't read a dictionary in the same way that we read a short story. And this is a matter of genre. And the Bible is no exception. It's not just a collection of books, but it's also a collection of genres. What I think makes the Bible even more challenging, however, is not just that it's a collection of genres, but it's a collection of ancient genres. And ancient genres, while they have some overlap to modern genres, are a little bit different. And so that's basically what I want to try and talk a little bit about today. So if there's one big idea that I would want to try and get across today, it is that, that the Bible is not this single, one, unified book, but is actually a collection of books. Not only is it a collection of books, but it is a collection of genres. And not only is it a collection of genres, but it's a collection of ancient genres. Now, I'll say a little bit more about the genres in a minute and give you a few quick examples. But I want to begin with what I call two foundational pieces. The first foundational piece is the fact that the Bible, 40 to 50% of it is actually written this narrative, which basically means story. We have the story of Israel. We have the creation story followed by the flood, followed by Abraham, all the way down to Joseph going off into Egypt and then Moses leading the people out of Egypt and, and then eventually giving the law the law being given on Mount Sinai before they go into their promised land and become a people. They're eventually ruled by kings and then they get some eventual disintegration of society and ultimately they have foreign powers that come and take them over and lead them into exile. That's basically the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell, much of it told in narrative. When we come into the New Testament, we have four different gospels in the book of Acts. They make up only five out of the 27 books of the New Testament, but they actually account for about two-thirds of the New Testament in terms of its volume. So the point is that much of the Bible is told as narrative or story. And when it comes to trying to do theology, narrative and story is quite different. It's really, in a sense, reading the Bible is a little bit more like reading The Lord of the Rings than it is reading something like this, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Catechism. Now, a catechism is basically a, a series of questions and answers. It'll ask a question like, who is God? And then give an answer. And then it'll ask another question like, what is sin? Give an answer. And this catechism has about 200 questions like that, all the questions you can think of in terms of theology, and it gives you an answer. So it's a question-answer book. But the Bible is nothing like that because much of it is told as story. In fact, not only do we get a lot of story, but if 50% of it is story, another 30% of it is actually poetry, which is even more imaginative and a bit more ambiguous in terms of its language. So whole books like the Psalms, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, these are all books of poetry. In fact, when we get to the prophets, which is a big chunk of our Old Testament, much of the prophets is written in poetry. Now, poetry, like I say, is the language of 
imagination and metaphor. Let me just give you one example. There's not as much poetry in the New Testament, but we get little bits of poetry embedded, and we certainly get this kind of poetic metaphorical language. So let me give you an example out of the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that if our right eye causes us to sin, then we ought to gouge it out and throw it away. Because it's better to lose one part of our body than to be thrown into Gehenna. That's the word he uses. We often translate it as hell, but he's talking about Gehenna, which is actually a physical valley just outside of Jerusalem. He goes on to say, well, if your right hand causes you to sin, same thing. We should chop it off, throw it away, uh, because it's better that than to lose a whole body and have a whole body thrown into Gehenna. Now, I don't know about you, when I walk around churches, I don't see anybody with missing eyes or missing body parts and this kind of thing because I think we intuitively recognize that when Jesus says these things, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not speaking literally. My point in raising it today is that I find quite commonly when I'm talking to people, they'll readily acknowledge that this is metaphor, but when we get to thrown into Gehenna, we automatically assume that Jesus is making some grand philosophical statement about hell. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think if we put it in its context, we can see he's using metaphorical language. Now, this I don't intend to get into a big discussion about hell with this. My point is simply that Jesus is using metaphor. I just finished watching the, the documentary on Bernie Madoff and how he had this grand Ponzi scheme that eventually came to light in 2008. Uh, and in a sense, Jesus is saying, a little bit like Bernie Madoff, if he dealt with his sin earlier and dealt with the, the deceit and the fraud earlier and got rid of that, then all might have been well, but he didn't. And the ultimate result of that was a hellish kind of existence. It was chaos that came out of that. And the result of it was all sorts of people were defrauded of a lot amount, lots of amounts of money. Uh, in addition to that, there was chaos in his family. One of his sons committed suicide within a couple of years, and the next one died of cancer a few years later, and his wife was left homeless on the streets. My point is simply that the Bible has lots of metaphor in its imaginative, <coughs> experiential kind of language. 80% of the Bible is story, 30% is poetry. Now, with that as a backdrop, let me go on and look at a few specific examples of genre. And I want to just take you through basically seven examples, which, of course, is a good biblical number because seven is a perfect number, and we'll end up on the best one at the end, which is the Gospels. Uh, but number one is I want you to think about instruction. And for this, I just use the example of the book of Leviticus. When we go to read Leviticus, it's not uncommon that we get bogged down. If we're trying to read our way through the Bible, we sort of get stuck there, and I understand why, because it's pretty dry reading, because basically it's a little bit more like a book of instruction. But what makes it even harder for us is the fact that it's really ancient instruction. It's talking about sacrifices and giving all sorts of instructions that we can't really relate to because it's not part of our lives today. Now, that doesn't mean to say that Leviticus has nothing of value to us, because obviously we can read stuff that has great relevance. Here's an example. This is taken straight out of Leviticus chapter 19, which says, Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Don't go about spreading slander. Don't seek revenge and have grudges against each other, but love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure we can all identify with that and we'd like to live that way and live in part of community that lives that way. 
But at the same time, there's other stuff in Leviticus that is a bit more strange. Things like, just a few verses later, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear clothing worn of two ki- uh, woven of two kinds of material. Don't eat any meat that still has blood in it, for all you steak lovers. Do not cut your hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard and do not put tattoo marks on your body. Now, I know that you're Pastor TJ because he happens to be my brother-in-law. I know he likes a good rest ache and I'm sure he's had the hair cutting off the side of his head and I know for a fact that he has a tattoo on his body. But we're not ready to start throwing him out of the church as if he doesn't belong because I think, again, we intrinsically recognize that there's something about these verses that doesn't really apply to us. We know the previous ones do, we know these ones don't. And I think this is part of the fact that a book like Leviticus is culturally embedded. It belongs to a different time and place. It's what I refer to as divine accommodation. It's like God is accommodating himself to the culture of the day and allows these expressions to come out in the Bible so that there are things that are said there, instructions that are given that would be fitting and appropriate in the day, but they're not for our day. And this means that we've got to read with a lot of discernment. We can't just read it again like a catechism, a rule book. It's not a question and answer rule book. We need to read it with discernment. Example number two is history. The Bible contains lots of history. One classic example in the Old Testament is the story that goes from the story of the kings coming into being all the way through the various kings that they have, a divided kingdom, and then eventually being led into exile. This story is actually told in two places. Firstly, it's told in the books of Samuel and Kings. And their basic focus is on the bad ending that comes about. And so they're really trying to say, look, there's all sorts of bad stuff happened, and this is why you've ended up in exile. Interestingly, the books of Chronicles actually tell the same story. They're like two parallels. It's like telling the story over. And you have to wonder, well, why would you tell the story over again? But Chronicles end up in a more positive place. They end up in this space where you have the king, of, uh, the king Cyrus, who is a Persian king, who is telling the Israelites, you can now go back to your country and you can start rebuilding your temple. In other words, it's a more positive spin on the history. So they tell it in a different way. So for example, stuff about David and Bathsheba when he gets into adultery and then arranges for her husband to get murdered so she can move in with him. And then there's chaos in David's family. All sorts of negative stuff about people like King David and others is just completely omitted from the books of Chronicles because they're telling a different story for a different purpose. What we learn from this, which is not just true of ancient history, it's true of modern history too, is that there's no such thing as sort of bare history, like the bare facts. History is always told with a certain kind of bias. It's the nature of history to do that, and we see it in this example right in the middle of our Old Testaments. My third example after history is maybe a little bit more controversial, and that is myth. For any of us who have read the opening chapters of Genesis, we know that it describes the world being created in six days, and for some Christians that means a literal six 24-hour periods. But for many other Christians, in the light of what's been discovered by Galileo and modern cosmologists and so on, 
we've basically come to the conclusion that, well, we think the universe probably is maybe 12, 13 billion years old and the Earth is four or five billion years old. And so this stands, seems to stand in contradiction to what we read in Genesis. And so you get this confrontation where it's either we're trying to defend Genesis as literal science and history, or we just think, well, it obviously can't be true, so we throw it out. I think there's a better and a third option, which is to read it as what is called myth. And myth doesn't mean it's untrue, it just means it's a different kind of way of telling the story. The best way I can do this is to just give a quick quote from a particular Bible scholar. His name is Harvey Cox. He says, when the scholars of religion use the word myth, they don't mean, to, they don't mean something that, unlike a fact, is simply untrue. Rather, myth is a narrative that, although not necessarily factually accurate, is nonetheless true in a deeper and more significant sense. He goes on to say that much of the difficulty we have in reading the Bible today results from literalism, when we mistakenly look for the facts instead of recognizing and appreciating the profound truth of myth. Now, you may not be entirely comfortable with the idea of myth in the Bible, but I know for me and for many other people, this has unlocked a way for me to read the Bible and to make sense of things like the opening chapters of, Bi uh, opening chapters of Genesis and actually brings the book alive for me in a way that otherwise I would feel I just can't connect with it. After myth, my number four is prophecy. Now there's big chunks of prophecy in the Bible. A good example would be Isaiah. It's a big long book. We have books like Jeremiah, also a big long book. Often quite difficult to read because we don't really we're not fully sure what's going on. We don't often have the historical background and context, and all of that can be helpful, uh, in addition to the fact they're filled with lots of poetry. But I just want to make one particular point about prophecy that I found very helpful. I think sometimes when we think about prophecy, we assume that prophecy is about predicting the future, looking into the future and saying, this is going to happen. Now, I'm not saying that kind of thing is not present in the prophetic literature of the Bible, but I think a much more dominant strand in prophecy is what I would call forthtelling. That is speaking, not so much predicting the future, but actually speaking into the present situation in order to address a present concern. And it's done so in a way that is kind of like a warning. It would sort of be like taking your teenage child who's into drugs and whatever and saying, look, if you continue along this path, then that's where it's going to end up. It's heading towards a path of destruction. Whereas if you do something about it now, you can change that. And prophetic literature is a little bit like that. It's really speaking into the community and especially speaking into the leadership of the community to say, look, you have an unjust society. And the reason we have unjust societies is usually because of the people at the top, the elite. They're the ones who create the unjust systems that everybody else has to live with. And prophetic literature is very much like the kind of a speech that speaks accountability into that group and says, look, you are the covenant people of God. You're supposed to be living a particular way, but you're not. And this is what it's producing. And this is where you're going to head if you don't do something about it. So it speaks to the elite and it really calls them to account. Now, the flip side of that and my fifth example 
is apocalyptic literature. We don't have a ton of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, but the most obvious apocalyptic book is the book of Revelation. For most of my students, when it comes to Revelation, they're like, I have no idea what to do with this book, so I don't even bother to read it. Uh, I think that's unfortunate, but then there are other people who, they know exactly what to do with Revelation, and they start pulling out charts and diagrams and mapping out exactly this is how history is going to unfold and when the world is going to come to an end and so on. I don't think that's a good way to read Revelation either. And in fact, for me, the most helpful thing I've ever come across in terms of reading Revelation is precisely to think about it in terms of genre. Now, Revelation, in a sense, there's certain letters in Revelation, and it also speaks about itself as prophecy, so it's a bit of a mixed genre. But I think the dominant genre when we're looking at Revelation is actually the genre of apocalypse, not a genre that we're very familiar with today, but one that was very common in the ancient world. In fact, there were multiple Jewish apocalypses and other Christian apocalypses, and they, uh, they actually take their name from the book of Revelation. And apocalypse just comes from a Greek word, apokalupsis, which means to reveal or to unveil. And so it's an unveiling of something, usually something about God and the way God is. And I think the fundamental difference between prophetic and apocalyptic literature for me is this that while the prophetic literature speaks to those in the elite and confronts them, apocalyptic literature really speaks to the people who are at the bottom and who are suffering persecution. And rather than coming and confronting them, it actually comes and is intended to bring them comfort. It's a way of God saying to these people, look, I know that you're struggling right now. I know that it feels like God is completely absent, but he's not absent. He is present. He is going to come through. So hang in there and persevere. Of course, apocalyptic literature ends up being written, like much of the poetic literature, in very metaphorical language, another indicator that we shouldn't take it and over-literalize it. Here's just one example out of Revelation 12. It says, A great dragon with seven heads uh, stood upon the earth, and he s his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them upon the earth. I just read something this week by a theologian talking about his days in seminary when his professor insisted that the stars would literally fall out of the heavens onto the earth, taking a passage like this and taking it very literally. And he said one of the other students in the class put up his hand and said, but sir, you know, if the earth gets particularly close to the sun, the sun is not going to fall into the earth. The earth is simply going to disintegrate in the presence of the sun if it gets too close. And the sun, of course, is a small star compared to a bunch of the stars in the universe. And I think he's absolutely right. We really can't take something like this and take it literally. Uh, and so, again, when we're looking at apocalyptic literature, I think it's helpful to both bear in mind its metaphorical nature and also to bear in mind its fundamental function, which is to communicate that God is going to come through. It's there to comfort the oppressed. A couple more examples. Uh, number six, my example, is letters. We don't have a whole lot of letters in the Old Testament, but we have quite a few in the New Testament, and I just want to take up one example, and that's the book of Philemon. So Philemon is written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote several of our letters in the New Testament, and it's basically a book written to a slave owner. 
so that Paul is the apostle writing the letter, and he's writing to Philemon, who was a slave owner, and they're obviously in different parts of the Roman Empire geographically, but Paul has with him somebody called Anisimus, and Anisimus is Philemon's slave. And so Paul writes this letter to send uh, back with Onesimus in order to say to Philemon, look, I want you to treat him gently, treat him kindly, don't be harsh with him. Now, it's usually assumed that the backstory of this letter is that, that Onesimus has run away and that he's a runaway slave. Now, I have a little bit of fun with my students because I get them to do an assignment where they have to look at Philemon and they have to try and fill in the backstory. And they have to try and fill in what is it exactly that Paul is asking Philemon to do. And you might think that on the surface this is a pretty easy thing to do, but in actual fact, it's not that easy. Because a letter, like any letters, letters are just they're one half of a conversation, right? It's like hearing one half of a telephone conversation and trying to figure out what's going on on the other side. Well, New Testament letters are like that too. Philemon knows the backstory, Paul knows the backstory, but Paul doesn't actually tell us what it is. So there's all sorts of details that we don't get when we come to read these New Testament letters. And we have to start trying to fill in the details, but when we do so, it's, we're really just doing our best guesswork. So when it comes to Philemon, for example, people fill in the backstory differently. Not everybody agrees on what exactly the backstory is, and not everybody agrees on what exactly it is that Paul is asking for when he makes his request to Philemon. My point in sharing all of this is again to just try and draw our attention to the fact that when we're dealing with the Bible, we're not dealing with this straightforward catechism of question and answer kind of book where there's a clear question and a clear answer. And so even when it comes to an issue so big as slavery, a book like Philemon doesn't automatically become this straightforward question-answer book about what we're supposed to do with slaves. In fact, I think when you read the Bible as a whole, it's pretty hard to sort of say there's this clear anti-slavery argument. The Bible never comes outright and says slavery is a bad thing, it should be done away with. In fact, it seems to assume its existence. And yet we know today that we think slavery is a bad thing. <laughs> it was abolished a couple of hundred, or 150 years ago or so, and we still live by that today. But this helps us again to just illustrate how the Bible is so culturally embedded. We have no problem saying no to slavery today, but that's not always been the case in our history. The American Civil War was a debate about whether or not the Bible is pro-slavery or anti-slavery, and the debate is not completely irrational because you can see how you can potentially make a pro-slavery argument from the Bible. So again, we're not dealing with this straightforward handbook that has these clear answers. There's a little bit of ambiguity, and it requires us to approach it with a lot of discernment and a lot of wisdom and a lot of humility. Number seven, and my last example, is the Gospels. This has been my own personal area of study and where I spent the most amount of time thinking. And I just want to illustrate that the Gospels are, yes, the Gospels are biographies of life of Jesus, but they're ancient biographies, which means they're a little bit different from what we might expect of a modern biography. I remember sitting in class myself as a student in a biblical interpretation class where the professor had us sit down and compare the parallel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
of the empty tomb. This is where the women go and discover the empty tomb of Jesus after he's died and when he's raised from the dead. And as we compared these accounts, I was suddenly struck by the differences that Matthew talks about an angel that's sitting on, a single angel sitting on uh, outside the tomb on top of the stone that's been rolled away. Mark speaks about a single angel standing inside the tomb. Luke speaks about two angels standing inside the tomb. John speaks about two angels that are sitting inside the tomb, one at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus lay. Four different accounts. And then I would see the same thing with the words of the angels. I would see the same thing with the women who came to the, to the, the gravesite, to the tomb. And then I discovered as I went through my own academic journey, I would be confronted again and again and again by these kind of differences as I studied multiple different passages in the Gospels. I would find the order of events different. I would find details different. Now, one response to that is to try and harmonize all of this stuff, and sometimes it's possible to harmonize some of these differences, but sometimes it just feels like we're just being dishonest when we're trying to harmonize some of the details. Another response is to say, well, these books are useless. They're completely unreliable. We throw them out. I don't think either response is the best response. I think it's better to understand that they're not just biography, but they're ancient biography, and ancient biographers wrote with different rules and conventions. It was normal for them to rearrange the order of events and not to be too concerned about precise chronology. It was normal for them to adapt and change little details and not to be too concerned about that. We might be concerned about that as modern people, but they weren't. It was normal. It was a normal part of their convention. And so I think that while you have these little differences, and yes, it can become a basis for saying that the Gospels are unreliable, I actually think they're quite reliable and they can be an they've been a tremendous source of encouragement in my own life and i think the vision of jesus as he proclaims his kingdom is just a profound vision that i'm able to tap into but i don't have to read the bibles in a literal wooden way when it comes to the gospels now i know that's been a bit of a whirlwind tour but part of my purpose was to just try and give you a little bit of a sense of the fact that the bible really is a library. It's a library of different books. It's a library of different genres. And it's a genres that really come out of the ancient world. And so we need to adjust a little bit when we come to try and read it and to make sense of it. To finish off, I just simply want to give you uh, three basic suggestions of how you might follow up on this. Uh, number one, I know that you've been recommended to read uh, one particular book on the Bible. I just want to recommend one more that some of you might be interested in. And it's a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's written by a couple of scholars by the name of Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And the reason I recommend this book is because, first of all, it's written at a relatively popular level. But secondly, it's a very good book in terms of basically approaching this question from the standpoint of genre. The second thing, I just want to reiterate that when it comes to reading the Bible, one of the most profoundly helpful things that I found and I'm recommending for you is not only to appreciate that it is, you need to appreciate its genres, but you need to appreciate ancient genre. Don't over-literalize things. And then thirdly, my last thing I want to suggest is that I think it's profoundly helpful to actually 
take the time to really study one particular book in depth. Get to know it really well. And then once you get to know that book really well, then you can move on to another book to get to know that well and appreciate the uniqueness of each individual book. And I know that you're about to start a reading program in the Gospel of John, and so the Gospel of John would make a really good starting point to, to begin onto, into that kind of journey where you can just take one book and really get yourself familiar with it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this sermon. I just, I just want to uh, say thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share what I've shared with you. I just trust that it's going to be something that if there is stuff that's disturbed you, I hope you can go away and wrestle with that. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. And I really hope that some of what I've said is something that's going to be, that will resonate with you, that will help you in your own journey as you're trying to journey with understanding this, this book that we call the Bible that I think is really intended to just draw us into a place of life in our relationship, both with God and with other people.